A lot of different passages, a lot of different verses, so I hope you're ready to flip through the Bible and grow in this and learn in this. Now, if you remember, if you haven't been with us for our first few studies through the book of Ecclesiastes, there's really three key verses that we're talking about. The first one is found in chapter 1, which sets the tone for the rest of the book. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, we believe that is Solomon. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor, in which he toils under the sun, depending on your translations? Meaningless, useless, futile. There is no point, he is trying to say. No point. And this book is written from the perspective of somebody who knows the truth, but is not walking it. And so therefore, this is the book of, of, dare I say, darkness. But it's not a darkness that brings us down. It's a darkness that reveals how deep and dark life can be without knowing the Lord fully. And as we go through this as believers, we can relate to this because we've had these moments. We call them Ecclesiastes moments where it's dark and we feel like we're at the bottom of the pit. And we can realize, yeah, I've been there. I've thought these same things. Imagine if my thoughts were recorded at those dark times. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And it also helps us to know how to minister to people going through Ecclesiastes moments. To say, listen, God is there in the midst of that darkness when you feel life is meaningless and pointless. Our next key verse is Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has put eternity in their hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. There's something longing for something more. We realize there's more to life than just going to work, coming to home, going to work, paying bills, laundry dishes. There's more. And we're searching for that. Looking for what that answer is. And finally, he finishes it up in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. It is that mindset that it has to get focused back on the Lord. That's the only foundation you have in this world that is falling apart. It's the only foundation we have in these Ecclesiastes moments. So as you're going through this book... Realize the honesty, I think this is the most honest book in the Bible, and written from sometimes that dark hole and how difficult life can be. So with that being said, we're in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. Verse 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and by a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and to not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words are also his vanity, but fear God. What an interesting passage. Be careful what you're saying to God. Look how just straightforward that is. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. That's an interesting verse. Now, this is where we have to see the balance of both sides of this. There is a time where we have to realize we are talking to the creator of the universe. We have to be careful sometimes how we do present this and how things do come across You know, the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 19. And the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and it's starting out pretty good? 
And it just keeps going and going and going. And next thing you know, you're saying things you shouldn't be saying. Your emotions are getting worked up. And the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Dawn and I were having a conversation not too long ago. And as you could just sometimes like, wait a second, this is getting a little tense. And she quoted that verse. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. You know, how dare she quote a verse like that, you know? But the truth is, sometimes we just need to stop the conversation, and we just need to stop and say, okay, we're past the point of being biblical and spiritual here, and we've entered the fleshly realm, and nothing good's going to come out of that. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you're going to pray, he says, be careful what you're saying. Matthew 6, verse 5, he says, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. How often in our prayer life do we just start repeating words? We're not even thinking about what we're saying. Maybe it was a prayer that you prayed growing up as a kid and you find yourself just vainly repeating it with no emotion, no thought, no anything, especially a prayer over the meal. Dawn was trying to teach the boys recently because we have different ones pray before we eat. And the boys, especially the younger ones, was, uh, Lord, thank you for this food, amen, and boom. It was like, amen, and there's already a fork in the food. And she's like, okay, do you even know what you're saying? Do you even know what you're praying? Does it even mean anything? That vain repetition. Or maybe you got this set prayer that you just keep repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. And you've lost the heart to it. You've lost the emotion to it. And it's just become words. Jesus says, be careful of that. Be careful what you're saying. You are talking to the creator of the universe. It's like when you're talking to an individual and you can tell whether they really care. Or they just, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. God's the same way. He knows our heart. So there's one side of this where it's like, yeah, you know what? Be a little careful. Now, but don't be afraid to talk to the Lord either. He's your father. He's your best friend, the Bible says. He's your husband, if you look at it from the spiritual standpoint. And so, therefore, there is an openness in communication. The book of Revelation repeats repeatedly that our prayers are like a sweet-smelling incense going up to the Lord. And he loves to hear our kids. I think about that as a father. I love hearing my kids tell stories. Love hearing them tell stories. And I believe the Lord is the same way. And so there is a blessing in also being able to just open your heart and just give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, here it is. So what is the balance of this? On one hand, you have our prayers or sweet incense that the Lord loves. On the other hand, you have Jesus himself saying, be careful of the vain repetitions. What is the answer? The answer is your sincerity. When you're praying, are you really seeking the Lord? Are you really trying to talk to the creator of the universe? Or do you think, as it says in the Bible, that through your many words you would be heard? That you can wear God down? No, that's not the point of it. What he's trying to tell us here in Ecclesiastes, be careful. Look at the wording right here in verse 5. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. When you come into the presence of the Lord, are you here to learn and grow? See, part of prayer is listening. So often we treat God like Santa Claus or we just want you to rubber stamp it. Prayer is also just sitting in the presence of God. Think of the story of Mary and Martha. And Mary just sat at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, she chose the better thing. Just to sit in the presence of the Lord there. Are you coming to listen? Are you coming just to offer sacrifice? See, a lot of times people come to church. Why do they come to church? I don't know. This is just what we do. This is what we do every Sunday. This is what we do every Wednesday. This is what we do. It's just this religious hoop we jump through. And here Solomon is saying, 
Don't come just to do the sacrifice. Get your heart in the right spot. This is an ongoing theme. David wrote in Psalm 51, sacrifices you do not want. That's almost heresy for a Jew to say, that you don't want sacrifices. The whole system was built off this idea of sacrifices. David says, you don't want more animals killed, you want my heart. Hosea says the same thing in Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Think about that. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What they're saying is, so fine, you come and offer a thousand animals to the Lord in the Old Testament. But your heart's not right. God says it doesn't mean anything. It's just dead animals. But if you come with the right heart, that's what he wants. He always wants your heart. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, where's your heart at? That's where the real relationship is. Now, there's also practical stuff to this as well, too. Can you go with me to James chapter 1? We're not supposed to be rash with our mouth. We're not supposed to be hasty with our words before God and with others as well. Our many words, our many words are going to get you in trouble. How often have you got yourself in trouble by saying things without praying about it or thinking about it? We were going through the book of James with the boys. You're going to be in James chapter 1. We got to the part about the tongue in James 3 where it talks about the tongue is set on fire by hell. Think about that for a second. The tongue is so dangerous and damaging that it can spew forth hellfire and destroy. It can destroy things. Remember as a kindergartner where you learned that little phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Do you remember that? That's a bunch of baloney. Words hurt. Bruises heal up. Broken bones can heal up. But sometimes you remember what somebody said 10, 20, 30 years later. It still stings. Words are powerful, and James says those words are set on fire by hell itself. And in fact, James says a mature man, a God, will control his tongue. So therefore, when we cannot control what we say, in the midst of rage and anger, we're spewing out things we shouldn't. Jesus said, out of the mouth proceeds the faults and intents of the heart. So sometimes what we are saying is really just a glimpse into our heart. And we think about what you say. And maybe it's behind closed doors. Maybe it's only in your head. Maybe it's only to your spouse. God says, that's your heart. So be very careful of that. James has great advice. Verse 19 of James 1. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. See, what James is saying right here is, fine, you hear God's word, you mark the verse. You underline the verse. You print the verse out. You got it on your fridge. You got it on your mirror in the bathroom. Are you doing it? Are you doing it? See, back in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying, so fine, you come and offer your sacrifices. But does it mean anything? Same thing that uh, David said in Psalm 51. Same thing that Hosea said in Hosea chapter 6. Let's just be honest. A lot of Christianity is built off of the classic good intentions. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the heart that is serious, that says, I believe it, I hear it, I apply it, and I'm going to go do it. And if you are hearing this tonight, you're like, okay, yeah, 
That, that's what I want. I, I don't want to be just words. I want to be actions. I really want to mean what I'm saying. Look at verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. Here he has no pleasure in fools. For what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Be careful. How often have we in our Christian walk made deals with God? God, if you get me out of this, I promise. God hears those things. God remembers those things. How often we said, you know what? I'm never going to do that again. We make these promises. Verse 6, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the message of God that it was an error. Don't ever make the promise and say, I I didn't mean it. Because verse 7, in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is vanity meaningless. The truth is in verse 7, we're supposed to have a healthy fear, or it means a healthy respect for God. So what a great start to this, the first seven verses. Watching our words, watching what we say, watching what we promise, watching what we mean, and making sure when it comes to prayer, this passage is not saying don't pray. This passage is saying where's the sincerity? The sincerity in prayer. I've mentioned to you before, when we did some of the outreach to the Muslims, and we went up to the Muslim mosques, and they were talking about their prayers that they do, and we actually went in there and watched them do it, and we were talking to them afterwards. The word that he kept using, the iman of the mosque, these are obligatory. And one of the things we asked him was, if it's obligatory, then does this mean your heart really wants to do it since you have to do it? And he said so honestly, because sometimes I question that myself. If I'm forced to do it, is my heart really in it? And what the writer here, what Solomon is saying is Ecclesiastes is, be careful with your words. Don't get into this forced habit of forced prayers, forced words. Is it sincere? Is it heartfelt? Are you really designed to go deeper in the Lord? That's what we want, a real sincere heart there. So that starts us out here in Ecclesiastes 5. Any quick questions, comments about prayer here or anything like that before we go on? Ellen. It almost sounds spiritual, you mean? See, if you were reading through this, and you were getting the beginning and the end, it would flow a little bit more better. Because if you're going with the end of chapter 4, he's talking about the king. And if you remember how we ended last week in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16 are an autobiography of Solomon. He's talking about how when he was young, he was right spiritually. And then when he became old, he fell away from the Lord. And so to me, it blends right into the end of chapter 4 because he's talking now as the old man saying, this is what I've learned. I have learned that God doesn't want my sacrifices. Remember, this is the guy that when he did the temple, I can't remember how many thousands of animals he sacrificed. He's saying now as the old king, God doesn't want my sacrifices. He wants my heart. So I agree, when you chop it up, it kind of seems like it doesn't fit. But if you go right from chapter 4 right to chapter 5, you would see this continual theme of I am the old king now that is not really walking the way I should, and so therefore I know what I'm supposed to be doing. But that's a good point. If you would take this passage as verses 1 through 7, you could almost really just make a great teaching out of this here. Anybody else got anything before we go on? Brian. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's true, like, once a word is uttered, it's impossible to take back. It's like a bullet that's been fired from a gun. You can't go back in time and say, oh, I didn't mean that, or I'm sorry, or right. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, once it happens, it, it's there. It's, you have to deal with the consequences. Proverbs has so many verses about the words, and especially the words about once they are coming out of your mouth, the problem that it is, which is an excellent point. And I go back to this point. The sign of a mature man, according to the book of James and according to the book of Proverbs, the sign of a mature man is a man who does not let his mouth get him into trouble. 
that is such a maturity there. Kathy. Yeah, <laughs> keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Is that new living? Yeah. I, new living is pretty straightforward with that. So there's some truth to that. Somebody else? Yeah, Renee. Um, so I just want to share what you Proverbs? I would say he wrote Proverbs right in the middle because if you take a look at it, and I don't have my notes from last week to... Um, give you the exact thing. But it would, I would say Proverbs are written right around probably 1 Kings 3 and 4 is where I would probably put Proverbs. And so that time is also when he is the good king spiritually because it talks about how many Proverbs he wrote and the Queen of Sheba coming to visit. And then what happens is by the time you get to 1 Kings 11 is when his heart fell away. So 1 Kings 3, he's good. By 1 Kings 11, he's fallen away. So I believe Proverbs is written more towards 1 Kings 3. Ecclesiastes is written more towards 1 Kings 11. That's what I would say. Anybody else got anything? Megan. Well, you got to remember, before he got saved, Corinthians makes it clear, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So the, the, the old Megan doesn't even exist. That, that's the beautiful thing about being a new creation in the Lord. Because if that old stuff was still held against us after we got saved, what's the point of being a new creation? That's the beautiful thing about being a new creation. Beautiful. All righty. Yeah, John. Let me quote, you said we have stupid attacks, is that what you said? Last week you said we had a bummer of something, right? Yeah, I'm trying to come up with speed. Yeah, you're, stupid you're, more you're bringing us down, that's what's happening. That's a, bummer, right? that's a bummer. No, but you bring up a good point, because as a baby Christian, I can remember being a baby Christian, being saved for probably months. Here's, a, here's a, just a completely true story. And I remember I was really praying over something, and I really wanted something to happen. And I was looking outside, and it was a full moon. And I remember as a, as a baby Christian saying, Lord, if you could just make the moon change color for a second. You know what I mean? And I would know you heard me and you cared. And I think I came the next Sunday, and Jim teaches on that, uh, you know, uh, the Gentiles seek after a sign. And, you know, and basically, he was basically saying, listen, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You don't have to chase those things because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you that gives you peace and direction and guidance and wisdom. And it's like, oh, so I don't need the Lord to make the moon change color to prove that I'm being heard. And so I do believe that sometimes as baby Christians, and we say those rash things, and to be honest, as a mature believer, our mouth still gets us in trouble, still gets us in trouble. That's why, once again, let me repeat this for the third time. Proverbs and James says a mature man watches his tongues. Sign of maturity is your tongue does not get you in trouble. What a great, great point that is. All right. So moving on here. So multitude of dreams, multitude of words, there's vanity. So you're just supposed to fear God. So right, we're all supposed to fear the Lord. But what do we do with all this junk in the world? Verse 8. 
If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. No, he who loves abundance will increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. He's kind of back to this idea now of, listen, I'm supposed to fear God, verse 7, but I look out in verse 8, everybody's oppressed. And it just keeps going up the chain of command. Do not marvel at the matter, for high officials watches over high officials, and higher officials are over them. So the poor are being oppressed, and the people over them don't care, and the people over them don't care, and the people over them don't care. This world system is full of greed and oppression. And what happens is verse 9 starts with the king. The king himself is served from the field. This is the king writing it. The king is saying, everywhere I look, I see greed and oppression. And I myself, I'm the one who gets fed by the field itself. And it all comes down to verse 10, greed. If you love silver, you're not going to be satisfied with silver. If you love abundance, you're not going to be happy with it. It's meaningless and pointless. We always want more. We always want the higher wages. We always want the better promotion. We always want the more toys. And the more we get, verse 11, the more problems we have. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What he's saying is, so now you have more. Well, now you have more people to take care of. You have more things to watch over. And those things are what keep you up at night. Verse 12, the guy that's just working the job, he goes into home and just sleeps. But the guy with all the riches, he can't sleep at night because he's constantly thinking about what he has. And there is so much truth to that. It just amazes me the stories I've heard over the years where people have invested in something or bought something, maybe what it is, a toy that they didn't need, and that toy becomes a headache to them. And then all of a sudden, all that extra energy that could have been spent on spreading the gospel, being in the Word, going deeper in the Lord, is now spent on trying to take care of this toy. And it keeps them up. There's something blessed about, I worked hard, I go home, I love the Lord, and I sleep. And I don't have to worry about everything that I have. I don't have to worry about all that stuff. But the problem is we still are convinced the more stuff we have, the more happier we'll be. This book is written to say, listen, this is probably the wealthiest, wisest man that ever lived. He had anything he wanted. He had the wine, the drink, the women, the whatever. And he's saying, I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm kept up at sleep worrying about everything I have. I have more people to take care of now because of everything that I have. Verse 13, there is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for the owner to his hurt. The more money I have, the more it hurts. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. So I have the money, then I lose the money. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Basically, I'm going to die, and it doesn't matter how much money I have when I die, because I'm still going to die. And when I die, I get to take none of it with me. I cannot carry it away in my hand. Verse 16, this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. Very simply put, you come into this world with nothing, you leave with nothing. What profit has he who labored for the wind? So if you just work hard your whole life to get more, more, and more, verse 16, what's the point when you die? There is no point. 
Verse 17, all his days he also eats in darkness. He has much sorrow and sickness and anger. So you work hard all day. You work hard your whole life. You picked up every extra overtime you can. You still die with nothing. You may say, well, that's not true. I die. I have this and this. That's right. But the point is you still take nothing with you. There's just your, it's just Jesus. That's all you have. That's the point of eternity. So he sums it up like this, verse 18. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for this is his heritage. And for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. See, now the problem is if we stop right there and we do that chapter break, we stop and say, hey, that that doesn't sound too bad. You know, God has given us just riches and wealth, eat and drink. And you know what? God just says verse at the end of there, verse 20, keep busy with the joy. Look at the full context. What does he say in verse 18? It's about being under the sun. Remember that phrase, under the sun, in the book of Ecclesiastes, meaning down here on earth. What he's saying is this. If this is all you have down on this earth is, is riches and drink, that's all you got. That's what God has given you. You might as well go with it. And if you only stopped at the end of chapter 5 and you did not go into verse 1 of chapter 6, because go right into verse 1 of chapter 6, there is an evil which I've seen under the sun and it's common among men. See, the theme continues. For a brief moment, he's saying, this is all we got. Might as well enjoy life. Might as well take the riches, take the wealth, take the drink. That's all we got under the sun. But he says, wait a second. There's still evil. And what's that evil? Verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and is an evil affliction. So I got everything I want. But someone else is going to come take it. In verse 3, if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but the soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not yet seen the sun or know anything, this has more rest than the man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. Catch the frame there. He's saying, even if you live 2,000 years and you have everything you want, he says, you know what? It may be better just to be the stillborn child because you don't have to deal with any suffering in this world. It goes back to what we talked about last week where he basically said, what's the point of living? I wish I never was born. This life is so meaningless, so pointless, so useless. I wish I never was born. Here he says, hey, the stillborn child, they got it better than I do. I could live 2,000 years with everything, but guess what? Some foreigner is going to come take it from me, verse 2. Verse 3, I could have a whole bunch of kids, but no one's going to care about me, and no one's going to be at my burial. I remember one time getting a chance to talk to a guy. I was at a hospital visit, and I dropped somebody off, and I was waiting. So I'm sitting beside a guy, and I just start up conversations, see where the Lord takes it. So we're taking it, we're talking. He's an older gentleman, and um, so you just start talking about life and family and stuff. And so you just, I've learned that you let people talk about themselves, and then once the Lord opens a door about God, you just jump and you go with it. So I like to ask, you know, kids, whatever. I said, so do you have any kids? He goes, yeah, I have five kids. And I said, oh, okay. I was about to ready to say, I have five kids. And I'm already, the kids are such a blessing from the Lord. God has blessed me. So he goes, I have five kids. And before I could even say anything, he goes, and they're all bums. That's what he said. They're all bums. That went downhill really, really quick. I look at verse 3. I have a 100 children. 
And they're all bums. I've lived 2,000 years. I wish I was dead. I have everything the world could offer. I don't want it. Some foreigner is going to come steal it. This is what the guy is saying. I would rather be the stillborn child and depart in darkness, never see the sun, never know anything, verse 5. Because why, verse 6, don't we just all die? This is Ecclesiastes moments. This is the darkness that people are facing. This is the darkness that some of you may be facing right here, right now. You may have loved ones facing this, co-workers. Maybe this was what you were in the past. Remember what it says in Romans, aren't we not more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? We're a new creation in the Lord. I think of all the verses where God says that he would take away the years the locust ate and replenish them to you. I think about what it says in Isaiah that God gives beauty for ashes. See, the problem with Ecclesiastes moments, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 6, are you going to stay there? Some of you want to stay there. Some of you get your kicks out of that idea of, oh, woe is me. I hope you don't. I hope I'm open here tonight. But I know people that don't want to come out of the pit. They want to stay there. Man, I don't know why you would. What a darkness. What a discouragement. And that's where it's our responsibility to come and speak the truth of who Jesus is. Now, they may not want to accept it at the time. Because if you ever talk to someone who's in a dark pit, they may not want to hear it. In fact, they may be angry that you say it. Plant seeds and get out of the way. The Holy Spirit will move. The Holy Spirit will work. And then when their heart is ready and their heart is softened to respond to it, you've planted the seeds and they will remember that then because the Holy Spirit brings it to memory. And there they know the path now to get out of this darkness. But when you're in the midst of that darkness, oh, what a darkness that is. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is. So before we finish up here with chapter 6, anybody got any quick questions, comments on anything here before I move on? All right. See what happens. Verse 7. All the labor of a man is for his mouth. And yet the soul is not satisfied. Did you catch that in verse 7? Basically he's saying you basically work to feed yourself. And your soul is not satisfied. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people where they have this epiphany. I'm working just to keep what I have. And I'm working just to get more things that I really don't want or need. That's why I'm working. I am working just to feed myself. My whole existence is to get enough money to pay for my mortgage, my rent, my electric bill, my gas bill. I'm paying enough to feed myself. And then verse 7, my soul is not satisfied. Why am I doing this? This is the man that has literally everything. And he's the wisest man that's ever lived. Verse 8, for what more has the wise man than the fool? So now he stops and says, how am I even any better? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. He says, how is the wise any better than the poor? He's already established we're all going to die. We're all going to just die naked without anything. So what does wisdom give us? So he says in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. See, the problem is we like to dream in verse 9. And he says, wait a second. Better not to dream. Better just to stick with what's right in front of your eyes. There's a lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. I love window shopping. Absolutely love it. I am so mature in the Lord, I'm not tempted by it. Dawn is not mature in the Lord. She can't handle it. So I like to say, let's go window shopping. She goes, why? If I can't buy it, why would I want to go look at it? Because Dawn lives in Ecclesiastes. I just want to go enjoy, you know? So what happens is she's right, though. We go look, and what happens is you see stuff that you didn't know you needed. And now all of a sudden, you need it. 
And I've joked with it just a couple weeks ago. That magazine, Better Homes and Gardens, what is it telling you? Your home and garden isn't good enough. Here's a better home and garden for you. All those shows on HGTV are all showing you what you could do and what you could have if you would just remodel. And and it's all this constant, oh, it's better and better and better. So what happens is we just keep dreaming. Just keep dreaming. We go online and we just like to go to stores and just look through all the different things they have. I know people like to drive through card uh, auto dealerships and just look at all the cars. And we just dream. And this creates this discontentment inside of us. I've told you before that when my boys go into Walmart, they always say, Dad, can we walk through the toy section? And I always say, you can walk through the toy section, but we're not buying anything. Nothing. Even if they're handing out to us for free, we're not taking anything. And without a shadow of a doubt, we go back in the toy section. They find that one thing. And it's the one thing that they said they've always wanted. And I look at them and said, I've known you your whole life. You've never once brought this up to me. And never once have you ever told me that you wanted this thing. And now all of a sudden, this is it? This is it. There's nothing good that comes out of it. Nothing good in any way whatsoever. And our whole society is based off of seeing the billboards, the commercials, the magazines, the advertisements to entice us to want it. Solomon is saying, better what you just see right with your eyes than the wandering of your dreams and desires. I I just want to encourage you because I see it in other people. I see it in myself. The wandering eye towards more, it will just suck you in and just create a discontentment. Think about how simply Paul described contentment in Timothy. Just how, just how strictly straightforward it was. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. It is having food and clothing. With these we shall be content. I ask my boys, do you have food in your belly? Yes. Do you have clothes on your back? Yes. Do you have a roof over your head? Yes. I said, you got everything the Bible says you need. But those who desire to be rich fall in temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greetings and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's 1 Timothy 6. Please note, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money in and of itself. It's the love of it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I highly encourage you to step back, careful of the daydreaming. And I'm not even talking about possessions. Daydreaming can lead to other issues and problems. You start daydreaming about other people. You start daydreaming about other marriages. I wish my husband was like him. I wish my wife was like her. I wish we had a family like them. I wish we had a house like them. We start dreaming. I wish I had a position like they have. I wish this, and what happens is it becomes this idea of jealousy. And it just eats you up inside. And if you remember correctly, we went through Galatians, we talked about the difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is I want what you have. And then it turns into envy, which I don't like you because you have what I want. And it becomes really, really dangerous. Very dangerous. Verse 11, since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Basically, it says in verse 20, What is the point of this meaningless life? I am just a shadow that appears and disappears. And can anybody even tell me what's going to happen after I die? As I mentioned to you when we first started going through Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago, there is not ever a good verse to end on to say, Good note. 
When we went through the book of Job, we could always find a good point where we said, okay, Job's getting it. Here in Ecclesiastes, your best hope is at the end in chapter 12 when he says, let me get to come to the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, put him first. But through the rest of this book, it's this. What's the part of living? What's the point of anything? There's no joy, there's no peace in any of this. It is a straightforward, honest book. And if you've been in Ecclesiastes moments before, you can relate to this. This is real. This is real. And maybe you know somebody who is. You're getting a glimpse into their life. So we need to give them the hope that is found in Christ. That hope that that we know is actually going to help them. That's what matters more than anything. And isn't that what we're supposed to do anyway? Is present this hope to these people that are hurting. They need to come to know this. They need to come to know the truth of all of this right here. I just want to remind you, this is a verse I've been using, I think, every week in Ecclesiastes. Romans 15, verse 13. Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, that's what we have. We have hope filled with joy and peace because we believe we abound in that hope through the Holy Spirit, and that's what we can give the world that's searching and dying and looking for more. Anybody got any final questions, comments here about Ecclesiastes before we close up? Anything with what we covered tonight? All righty. No one's got anything. Would you guys please stand with me so we can pray together? Lord, as we come to you now, we want to put this into practice. We don't want to just talk about it. We want to live it. We want to believe it and all that we say and all that we do. Lord, it is all you help our eyes to stay focused on you and not the disappointments of man or the world or anything. You are that true, sure foundation. Forgive us for trying to find any joy or peace apart from you. Help us to live it fully in all we say and do. Um, we just want to pray for the upcoming outreach at, at Lima Correctional. Raise up the people. You've said that the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. We need some more laborers for this. We pray you would raise that up. I know Tony's asked for prayer, too, for help on Wednesday night. We need some more laborers to help on Wednesday night back there with the kids. Pray you would just move the people in the spirit to help that, that you are called. But for right here, right now, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If anybody's got anything they want to pray about, I'll hang out up here. We can get together and pray. You guys have a good week, and God bless.